right, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This is episode number 29. I am Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I'm joined, as always, with Dr. Austin Baraki, and our special guest this week is Dr. Michael Ray. This week, we're going to talk about chiropractic care. But first, we wanted to hear from you guys. Why do you go see a chiropractor? I went to go see a chiropractor because I had limited range of motion on my neck. I could not fully turn it to the right. Um, only about halfway. Uh, went in one time and I made the adjustment and I had full range of motion after that. The, while I was there, they also worked on my back, you know, made adjustments there, but I found that it kind of caused lower pain, lower back pain, uh, discomfort, and that interfered with my deadlifting, so kind of stopped going. My wife would go when she was pregnant for her hips. Uh, she had a lot of problems with walking and a lot of pain. She would go for weekly adjustments. That really seemed to help her, but after the baby was born, we stopped. I would say um, overall, it's kind of a bandage. Makes you feel better. Didn't really solve any problems, but helped you get through uh, some pain. I am a lifter, and I have been involved with chiropractic and receiving chiropractic treatment for several years. My great-grandfather was a chiropractor and when I was a kid I was exposed to chiropractic treatment and I found that when I start to get tight, going to see a chiropractor has helped me to experience a sense of release and relaxation. Could be a placebo effect, but it's worked on me all my life. I ended up at the chiropractor for three reasons. The first was panic. After an apparent injury, I needed a place to go. Didn't know much about it and uh, had heard that a chiropractor would do right by me. So that second factor is word of mouth reports uh, that folks had good experiences at a chiropractor, that the therapy that they received there helped them feel better after an injury. And the third is access. It was simply easier to get an appointment and walk in at a chiropractic office than it was to schedule an appointment with a primary care physician or with a sports medicine doctor or physical therapist. I go to the chiropractor because I have a cracking time. We'll talk about what is chiropractic care. The general public's consensus on it is it, it usually equals some type of intervention, which is a, a joint manipulation, most people think, um, or adjustment, and we could totally jump down that rabbit hole, but same, same. Uh, my take on it is it's a profession, um, and then that profession gets to decide what are going to be the treatments of their choice for intervention. When you should get an adjustment. Everything I've seen thus far is no better than placebo-like expectancy effects. So you know, you're getting pain reduction because uh, there's strong therapeutic alliance. You've set the expectation this treatment's going to do that for you. You've bought into what the clinician's saying to you, and therefore you get a result. And how to manage chronic pain, such as low back pain. Yeah. Uh, lots of conversations. Um, I, I feel like that's probably where we're going to have the best place to hedge our bets at this point in time is um, one of the things I say regularly is a really long subjective and then a really small objective uh, as far as during the interview. All this and more on this week's episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Yeah. Uh, Michael Ray. I am a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Um, I have, uh, it's always like an awkward part of like, Tell us everything you can tell us to make you sound like you're an authority on some topic. But <laughs> uh, I have a bachelor's and master's from University of South Carolina. Master's is in exercise science. And then I got my doctorate of chiropractic from Thurman College in South Carolina. Wife and I have been here in Virginia probably about one on three years now. 
Um, then I opened up a practice after school called Shenandoah Valley Performance Clinic. So we try to specialize in sports rehabilitation, return to sport for athletes. Um, we see all kinds of cases, pretty much anything you could think of. Um, and then we try extremely, extremely hard to be as evidence-based as we possibly can with our treatment selection and then our uh, diagnosis and stuff like that with patient education. How long have you been with clinical athlete? Because that's another thing that people uh, will recognize. So uh, just full disclosure, we met uh, or I came to know Michael through Austin, who came to know Michael through Derek Miles, who's our, our favorite uh, PT guy. So we'll, uh, we'll link to the episode we did with him uh, earlier uh, in our podcast series. Uh, how long have you been with a clinical athlete? Um, I want to say it was 2015, November of 2015, give or take. It was, I think he started in August and I joined that fall afterwards. Yeah. So you're, you're, a, you're a clinical athlete OG. Yes, absolutely. And, and he teaches, you, you teach some of these uh, sports rehab cor courses together with, with Derek, right? Yes. Shockingly, people pay Derek and I to come drink alcohol in their city and then lecture to them about some random things we like to rant about. Well, people do the same thing for us. So. <laughs> as I was going to say, that, that hits too close to home for me. Well, we're, we're really happy to have you. And I think uh, this episode would be very uh, useful, very uh, thought-provoking, and as always, very controversial. So um, let's kick this thing off. Can you describe in your own words what, uh, what is chiropractic medicine? What is chiropractic care? Yeah, uh, this is always an interesting topic because I think the general public's consensus on it is it, it usually equals some type of intervention, which is a, a joint manipulation, most people think, um, or adjustment. And we could totally jump down that rabbit hole, but same, same. Uh, my take on it is it's a profession, um, and then that profession gets to decide what are going to be the treatments of their choice for intervention. So it's a, a clinical profession which has access to the public um, and almost, I think, all states at this point directly. Um, who can help them kind of guide their path towards dealing with the elements that they have to have uh, dealt with, then putting them on a path towards their goals in not so many words. I think it's helpful to give you like the, the your 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 definition of it in that context because you know whenever you know discussions and debates about chiropractic and associated kind of professions, they they get very heated and they get very contentious, as I'm sure you have plenty of experience dealing with. And a lot of it boils down to, Kind of vague definitions as to what is or what isn't, uh, you know, chiropractic or what is or what it, what does what is what falls within a, you know a scope of practice or not, and so yeah, it can get pretty pretty nasty uh, as a result of that sometimes. Yeah, people get emotional about that uh, for whatever reason, and, and more so shockingly, inter uh, interprofessional yeah. uh, arguments are way worse than I've ever seen like between other professions. Yeah, well, I, I think you know, as Austin alluded to, it, it's important to just to define what you're going to discuss, especially the scope of practice, mainly the, so that way there's no straw man arguments. There's no, you know, uh, well, chiropractic's just snap, crackle, pop, right? That's it. So if, if we're just talking about that, then, then uh, you know, this is a shorter episode. Uh, I, I do think it's interesting, though, that, yes, uh, I agree, interprofessionally, people are get very heated and, and, and emotional and, and will uh, argue in a way that is not productive. It's basically arguing in a way to make you feel dumb or make, you know, try to belittle somebody. And I don't think that's terribly useful. I mean, you know, I, so chiropractic medicine started 1895, I guess. Uh, Daniel Palmer adjusted this, uh, uh, somebody who had lost his hearing or was partially deaf. And then the next day the guy could hear and then boom, chiropractic medicine's off to the races, right? Well, 
And then, but since then, look, there's been a lot of, there's been things in chiropractic medicine where you guys wish you had back. I say you guys, but you know, the, the community would, would want to have back. Look, in medicine, the same sort of thing, right? So I think that if we're trying to hold everybody to the standard where you, there can't be any, uh, you know, poor practices in history or, or mistakes, then we're all, we're all screwed. So I, this episode is not going to be the condemnation of chiropractic care. <laughs> it's, it's more so a discussion about what you do in your practice and why that aligns better with this evidence-based model that we're trying to get out there versus saying chiropractic stupid. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I think it's um, a good thing that you pointed out in terms of like a profession that has interventions available to it and that you let the evidence guide your kind of the way you select your intervention. Because for somebody who is just to paint in broad strokes and say like all of chiropractic is, you know, it just needs to disappear without formally defining what you're talking about. It's kind of similar to saying like all surgeons are quacks because some surgeons perform unnecessary procedures or spinal fusions or something like that, that, that don't improve outcomes. So, you know, if we want to talk about the profession, that's one thing. If we want to talk about the interventions that they use and the evidence for against or how it fits in the treatment model, that's, that's a whole different and more interesting discussion. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, I'm sure there's a, we could have this discussion for probably the majority, if not multiple podcasts on like uh, societal opinions on professions and how uh, it can get very easily manipulated. Um, and that can go for anyone, whether it's MDs, DCs, PTs. You know, I think oftentimes everyone gets pigeonholed by a title without realization that this title is actually just a profession and that they can decide what they want to do as their interventions. But you could easily be like, PTs all do, you know, TheraBand and ultrasound, and uh, orthos just cut on people, and MDs just give out pills. Uh, we have this broad definition of a chi- what is chiropractic, what is it. I had a follow-up question. In chiropractic school, what would you say, uh, what sort of things did you learn in chiropractic school that you still apply to your practice today? Because because I think a, a big question is, well, what do you even learn? What do they learn? in, you know, these chiropractic schools. So what would you say are like the things that have, that, you know, been universally yeah, applicable from, from education through your professional practice now? Uh, I think it did a great job at helping me learn kind of uh, ways of doing things. For example, like history and physical exams, taking a patient interview with someone, um, stuff like that. Like they also did a really good job at teaching orthopedic tests, but then I later read way too, well, not way too much, but I read a lot of information. It was like, oh, okay, these are pretty much mostly bullshit and have, you know, low sensitivity and specificity. And so I think they do a good job at laying a, a base foundation of kind of like how clinical practice should go for people, how to assess a patient, how to do interviews. Um, and then a lot of us have, uh, and I think this is in all states at this point, you know, we can order imaging, so we had to take a lot of radiology classes and interpretation and x-rays and MRIs and CTs and stuff like that. So I think that, uh, in my opinion, they did a decent job at saying uh, laying a good foundation. Um, and I think most schools, to add to that, do that. They lay a decent foundation for people to build from. But I think uh, no matter what school you go to, you end up coming out uh, with this feeling of kind of lacking of information. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I actually wasn't aware that, I guess it is state by state, if that makes sense, because I knew in some states that you could order imaging. It, being able to order imaging as a chiropractor, I mean, uh, honestly, even as a non-surgical <laughs> you know, uh, uh, physician, I, how, would, ha, how would you say that your ordering practices for, for imaging 
is different than maybe some of your classmates. I mean, do you feel like you're you're ordering way less films than uh, than your classmates? Yeah, for me, it's like, um, what are the guidelines? Because obviously we have guidelines and when, when you should and shouldn't order radiological images. Um, but outside of that, if, if there's not something that I'm grossly concerned is going to greatly alter my plan of care or I need to get the person out of my office and somewhere else, then I'm not ordering Im imaging. Um, if it's not going to alter those things, then there's no need for it. And as we look at the research currently, we're realizing more and more it's probably needed a lot less than what we've been doing previously. Yeah. Well, that's something Austin and I talk about all the time uh, in sometimes serious and sometimes joking manners, you know, just, oh, you have, you know, acute low back pain that's mild, should definitely order an MRI, see what happens. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, actually just do a full body scan. It's kind of like you're at the airport. It's really challenging in day-to-day -day practice because, you know, patients have their, you know, all of this stuff is kind of wrapped up in this social context. Everybody's interacting with one another, walking around on the earth, they're having their experiences with pain and back pain and stuff like that. And then one person hears from another that they got an MRI that diagnosed whatever, and they got fixed on that. And so that, you know, these patients come in and they're, you know, basically insisting that I get imaging on them, which I might not feel is appropriate. That's definitely something I'm sure you run into as well, trying to work yeah. through that kind of tactfully to, to bring them up to speed with kind of the way, the way these things should be managed. And sometimes, uh, you know, denying that imaging, but in a way that's not, uh, you know, you know, in a real negative way perceived negatively by the patient. Yeah, it's a balancing act because you don't want to come off as dismissive, like, oh, I know you have all these concerns, but they're irrelevant. They don't matter and you don't need this, but so it's definitely a balancing act. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting. This is, this is quite timely. You know, I was talking with uh, uh, some people that are uh, that I interact with <clears throat> regularly, and the idea is, well, I just want to know, you know, like, I, I want to get a, a, an image of the particular joint or body part and say, I just want to know what's causing my pain or what, and, and I said, my response is, well, the imaging may be false. You know, that may not be the cause of your pain. You could have a, you know, critical positive imaging, you know, where you have a tear, you have a, an injury or some sort of pathology, but that might not be causing your pain. But now every time that you feel something, you'll ascribe it to this thing. And then if that thing is unlikely to resolve without surgery, then you've, you're starting to this, this process where, well, surgery might be the only thing to, to do. And, and that's, so you don't really want to know unless it's going to change what you do and, and you'll usually have other symptoms. But I do think, I did think that was interesting when you mentioned that chiropractors could, uh, could order, uh, imaging and, and that makes sense. Cause I do know that in some States, uh, that, that was, um, a thing. I was gonna say a lot of offices have them like in their office. I don't, we, we have a, a hospital really close to me. So I just refer out when I need to take imaging, I send them down to the road to the hospital and then they send over the reports and images for me. But uh, yeah, I mean, some people, unfortunately, uh, I think it's a big concern. There's an overutilization of it that patients come in and it's uh, on initial consult day. It's every other week. It's, you know, trying to look for these changes. And um, if we wanted to get into this, we totally could. I think the premise is flawed just based on what they're thinking exists that they're trying to treat that we don't have evidence to actually say that it does exist and that we need to treat it. And so they're unnecessarily imaging patients on a false premise, which is a whole other issue in and of itself. Yeah, and I think just to be crystal clear, it's people will be like, you guys are talking about a lot of theoreticals. But you're suggesting is that if there is some degree of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, disc or not a uh, uh, vertebral misalignment, quote unquote, that you could potentially read that one, that's normal to a degree anyway, and then you're not putting it back in place. There's no way to move that via physical pressure unless you're a car 
or like a, you know, a, a variant press or something. You're not going to be in my office if something shifted that much, yeah. Right, right, right. So do you hear that, folks? That was a chiropractor saying that you cannot put a vertebra in or out of place in the office. Just there you go. That's, that's we, we got it on tape. That leads to, I think, a good question. You asked what was the what were the things that he took with him from from you know from chiropractic school, and then kind of the other side of that coin. What are some of the biggest things that you think that your thinking has evolved on that you do differently in practice now compared to your training? Uh, probably almost everything. <laughs> I think outside, of, and it's easy to say this. I think once you have a broader knowledge base, then you can decide what is relative relevant information and what isn't. So you you are able to kind of trim the fat, so to speak. And I think um, after getting that base and kind of getting out into clinical practice and, and uh, definitely joining the Clinical Athlete Network changed my view on a lot of things. Um, and reading more research, I realized that we have a lot of evidence to say what we probably shouldn't be doing versus evidence of what we should be doing with patients. And yeah. so that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of like, well, what does matter in clinical practice? What do I need to be able to talk to my patients about? And what interventions do I feel like have the most efficacy based on research evidence currently? And when you look at it from that frame set, uh, things get dwindled down pretty quickly. To like, okay, we have, uh, as far as my scope of practice is concerned, evidence for patient education regarding things like pain science. And then um, for me, I, I use exercises and intervention in order to help with things like cure avoidance behaviors and to get them to accomplish the goals they want to be able to accomplish each day. Uh, that's actually a pretty good segue right into kind of like practical uh, your day-to-day practice so what's your current patient population like who do you normally see who do you normally work with how many patients see a day stuff like that yeah it's um as far as like population it's all over the board um we definitely like uh athletes and return to sport um we see a lot of recreational athletes we see um team-based sport athletes individual athletes barbell athletes um so the spectrum's kind of wide and then we kind of fell into geriatric as well um I don't even still really understand how it happened, but we had a lot of patients that started to come to see us for things like uh, general muscle weakness, fall risk reduction, um, things like that. So we ended up uh, doing a ton of strength training with the elderly population, which is awesome to me. I think it's pretty badass to be in that position and do that. Um, but you know, we see post-op shoulders, ACL reconstruction, um, traumatic post-falls like vertebral fractures, um, then we see a lot of chronic pain patients. So it really is just kind of across the board. Um, any given practice day for me um, could be from like three patients up to eight. Eight would probably be like my max. I tend to spend about an hour with each person, um, and I may just not be worth a shit after that that eighth hour. So. Well, so I, I just want to clarify. So you're, you're seeing all these folks, uh, some of them for like, it sounds like general strength conditioning and other folks sounds like they came to you because they had pain. So let's like, let's divide, right? So the, the people who are coming to you for risk reduction, fall risk reduction, or just, you know, muscle deconditioning, whatever, this, you're effectively just training them. You're saying, hey, we got to get stronger. So here's what we're going to do. So w- would you say that chiropractic school adequately prepared you to coach folks in person on how to get stronger? I mean, I, having never gone through it, I can't say for sure, but definitely not. <laughs> uh, not this, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's you know that, that's a. I was actually talking with this uh, a guy. He's in a chiropractic school right now. 
about, you know, he says, he, he was like, what, I, I want to, what's your opinion on what I should do after school? And I was like, I think you should coach people and not practice what is traditionally considered chiropractic medicine. I mean, so, so it, it's, it's going to be a lot of strength conditioning stuff, which you're not learning. You know, there is no college to go to where you can learn legitimate strength conditioning principles. Well, you can go to, F, you can go to FAU potentially with it and hang out with Mike Zordos and Jake Wilson, like that you could do that. But you, you, that's more of a, a theoretical, like programming versus actually coaching folks how to how to move. So, um, in any event, so so that's one half where you're doing you're actually just you're coaching people. Where do you, where do you think you got most of your coaching chops from? Where do you where did you develop that skill? Um, I mean, my master's definitely helped a lot. Like having that experience, that was a two and a half year program. Um, I did an internship with USC Strength and Conditioning uh, Division for Olympic based sports. Um, so that helped out a lot. Um, and then I've just been doing personal training and coaching individuals, um, gosh, at least since I was 18, I'll be 33 next month. So I've been in the health and fitness world for quite some time. Um, yeah, I'm getting old. Thanks, Gordon. <laughs> I turn 33 next Sunday. So. Oh, do you? Yeah. So it's, You're old with me. Yeah, yeah. it's Father's Day, but it's also Daddy's Day. So we're, uh, <laughs> I am the most senior person on this, uh, on this podcast. So got to kill myself now. Thanks. Thanks guys. Hey, do you have your walker yet? Do you have it ready to go? Cause you know, after 32, they just say it's downhill from there. I put the DME request in, but I got denied. So <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to get a social worker on the case. Uh, I'll get you a motor scooter, bro. Don't worry. There you go. A Vespa. Uh, so you're, you're a coach. I mean, you've done a lot of coaching, and I think this is a normal story, the normal history that you hear from people who are actually who know how to coach, who know how to train others, is that they've just been, they've been doing it for a long time, and combine that with this more formal education, right? You take like this is the theory here, like physiological principles that allow and and scientific method ex- exposure that allows you to kind of go through data and, and, and assimilate it in your brain and come up with something that's cogent that you can apply to people. And then here's the actual practical application. And you can't have one without the other, right? The person who's just coached folks for 20 years, that's a valuable experience. But without this, you know, more formal education, it's difficult to to have them have insight into, well, why did this work? What are the underlying premises and principles and stuff? So it sounds like you've had that that's that's what what uh, what's driven a lot of your coaching uh, prowess, uh, and that's one half of your practice. The other half, which I think Austin and I are more interested in, what do you what are you doing with your pain, folks? What are you doing with the people who come in with the uh, let's, let's call it chronic low back pain? Make it real practical since that's the that's the most common. Yeah, uh, lots of conversations. Um, I I feel like that's probably where we're going to have. The best place to hedge your bets at this point in time is um, one of the things I say regularly is a really long subjective and then a really small objective uh, as far as during the interview. You know? Well, could you, for, for our listeners who are not necessarily clinicians, can you explain what you mean by a long subjective and a short objective? Yeah, so uh, subjective would just be listening to the patient about their concerns with the issue that they've been dealing with. Um, kind of like, how long has it been going on? Uh, what have they done previously for it? The standard is uh, like quality of uh, the pain that they're experiencing and the quantity of it, stuff like that, giving them an opportunity to talk about their life experience with this situation and this issue. Um, Because that, to me, uh, based on what we're seeing in the research evidence currently, matters more than anything is 
um, uh, their thoughts, their beliefs, and their expectations of the situation. And then because we know with uh, kind of chronic persistent recurrent pain, the biology of the situation matters exponentially less than we previously thought. We know the psychosocial correlates are a lot higher at this point. So with that said, we're trying to shift away from a biomedical model which means my objective examination, where you know you put it on your doctor's hat and you're actually searching for something to kind of lead you to why this person's having symptoms, gets minimized a lot because I'm no longer trying to apply a diagnostic label to this person as much. Austin uh, has been geeking out recently on the uh, this role of social learning, and I, I think you alluded to you know the the that a little bit in your explanation. Austin, you wanna you wanna talk a little bit about social learning and then. Uh, you and uh, Michael can can delve in on that as far as its role in this chronic pain sort of discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think that people have been listening to us and the stuff we've talked about, uh, and and really, you know, because of how underappreciated, I think particularly in like the lifting scene where everything's about like physics and mechanics and optimal lifting technique and stuff like that. There's really been historically an excessive emphasis on the biological correlates that that that, uh, that Michael is talking about. And so we've kind of brought to the forefront these understandings of the role of psychology, expectations, fear avoidance, catastrophizing, all this stuff that we talk about all the time. And I think people's perception as to our understanding of pain has swung too far to where they think that, like, you know, we think that all pain is just, like, purely a psychological phenomenon. You know, you end up with that phrase that irritates me to no end where it's like so what you think i can just think my way out of pain or something and it's like all in my head (laughs) so so i think i think it i think what i would really like to do is to promote like uh, a very comprehensive understanding where people can have understanding of kind of the biological principles understand stuff like nociception and inflammation and stuff like that which certainly has a role particularly in the acute setting uh, understanding all these psychological things that, you know, when you do this lengthy subjective interview that Michael's talking about, people are just throwing out red flag after red flag, not from like true red flag symptoms, but if you just listen to people talk, you know, they tell you how terrified they are of what's going on if you know what to listen for. And so so that's really important. And then the last component of this biopsychosocial deal is the role of the social kind of experience that humans have walking around on this planet, interacting with one another and talking about their experience and observing one another and, and stuff like that. So I'll let Michael talk a little bit about, you know, your impression and your, your thoughts on the social side of things. Yeah, uh, as far as social, when we look at it, uh, there's obviously a cultural component to all of this as a discussion of pain. So we know that pain is kind of biologically adapted for through natural selection, so we can survive as a species. But with that comes the ability to express pain. And so we have things like uh, linguistics, to so use your words verbally, facial expressions, so we grimace, all of these things are part of that social cultural experience. And the whole point of it is to elicit aid and help. So you express yourself experiencing pain. So someone comes along, they help you out. And hopefully this ensures the survivability of you and overall the species. But with that comes an understanding of what we thought pain meant. Um, and as a culture, we've kind of adopted this idea that previously pain always meant tissue damage and someone's in, help, uh, in the need of aid and we should rush to their aid and help them. Unfortunately, with that came, we kind of perpetuated learned helplessness, which is part of this societal problem um, in the development of chronic pain. Well, I think that just about does it here for the pain. <laughs> I mean, there's so much to literally the last 45 seconds of that. I think if you've never heard that discussion before, like go, rewind, listen to that, stop, rewind, listen to it again, and then chew on it 
there's there's really a lot to unpack there, and I think that's the subject for probably oh another fifteen or so podcasts just discussing yeah. all these things. If not years. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I think what I like to emphasize when I'm like trying to educate people on this stuff, because it's what well, it's super underrecognized. People don't understand that, like literally from birth throughout your childhood, throughout your entire life, you are learning how to respond to these sort yeah. to, to, to what you perceive as pain. And so, you know, you, you talked about learned helplessness and there's evidence on this in, in pediatric pain, uh, you know, settings where they learn based on how their parents have responded to pain. And so I now am kind of I think what I one of the topics that I've gotten more interested in now is kind of like, you know, how do our clients, if we're coaching them, how do they respond to our reactions to things like, you know, pain, symptoms like fatigue, aches, you know, uh, you know, crepitus, things like that, 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 you know, the more your coach freaks out, the more you're going to freak out, the more symptoms you're going to have. So lots of social learning going on there that I think is really interesting. And it puts, uh, you know, uh, some important um, responsibilities, I think, on coaches, just as much as it puts responsibilities on you know, medical and healthcare professionals uh, to pay attention to how they're interacting with their clients and their patients and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's been a lot of good qualitative studies that have come out on this, looking at what do patients, uh, what are their beliefs about the issue they've been dealing with? And then where do these beliefs come from? And almost every qualitative study I've seen, um, healthcare professionals are the primary source of this information. Yeah, which means we're driving beliefs about pain and then we're driving learned responses about how to handle pain. So we're kind of a big part of this is us to blame. Like this lies on our shoulders squarely about how we've been handling this issue. Um, and then if you add on things like the opioid epidemic, that's a whole other issue to talk about how we've been poorly responding to the issue uh, collectively as a society. But I, I think you're exactly right. Like we need to be cautious. Um, I think a, a lot of what I do, quite honestly, is minimizing and, and trying not to magnify issues to make them sound a lot worse than what they actually are which goes hand in hand with imaging like we were talking about previously. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I was discussing uh, yesterday or two days ago on Instagram Live. It, it, you know, somebody is talking about a particular painful joint or whatever. My initial assessment is very is thorough in that I want to make sure that there are there's nothing that requires me to alter, the, a, a, a deviate from conservative management, right? And um, But once I'm, I'm fairly sure that this is something that's just going to go away and that it's not going to require surgery or, uh, you know, further, further, uh, evaluation, I do minimize, you know, I, I'm, I'm empathetic with the person I'm, I'm trying to show understanding and I'm trying to get them to think about it differently, but at the same time being vigilant about how does it feel today? Does it hurt when you do this? Does it hurt when you do this? You know, pay attention. I don't want to do that because it makes it worse, right? They start noticing that that things hurt a lot more. uh, I actually had a a client who uh, was having some shoulder pain and uh, it was only, it only would come, it happened like every so often when she was bench pressing. And uh, (laughs) I was like, why don't you uh, think, think about something positive? What's the last, what's the best thing that you've had to eat recently? And she was like, Oh, it was a tiramisu cake. And I was like, is really good. Well, I'm upset that you didn't bring that to me, and so now I'm in pain. But uh, <laughs> before you go do this next set, I want you to think about this uh, tiramisu, know what it tastes like, whatever. And uh, anyway, so she does this set. It's near PR level. And uh, I was like, anything? She's like, oh, what? No, it didn't hurt. I was like, well, all right. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's not meant to say that uh, I did anything super useful there other than we just can't focus on you know, this potential pain issue.
What do you think about pediatric chiropractic care? Oh, man. It's funny you ask that because I was actually online and I, I follow uh, science-based medicine and like uh, Stephen Neville and stuff over there. They actually had an article today uh, on this topic, which I thought was interesting. I haven't had a chance to read it. I, I think it depends on uh, how are we defining pediatric and then what are we doing with those uh, patients in our office, you know? So if someone is uh, doing something like joint manipulations and stuff like that, as far as my knowledge uh, is concerned, there's no evidential support for that, for any narrative that's being supplied or to actually do the joint manipulations. That's what you're asking. Usually that's where that goes. So so no joint adjustment for a pediatric population. I mean, when, would a joint manipulation ever be indicated for any population based on current evidence? Everything I've seen thus far, it's no better than placebo-like expectancy effects. So you know, you're getting pain reduction because the, there's strong therapeutic alliance. You've set the expectation this treatment's going to do that for you. You bought into what the clinician's saying to you, and therefore you get a result. So that was that was one of the questions I wanted to ask. Is, is in your in your practice at your performance clinic, and you're seeing patients either with acute injuries or chronic pain, stuff like that. How much manipulation are you doing on them? Zero. Zero manipulation as a practice. No manipulation. None. Except for the to get them to like you. I mean, <laughs> like psychologic. I can only um, assume before that from a chiropractic outcome standpoint, your outcomes must be horrible. You're not. You're not. They're the floor, man. I'm actually amazed I have my lights on for this podcast today. <laughs> well, for some reason, come back come back and see. That's cool. Then, then in that vein, what is the role that you see, if any, for something like manual therapy? What are these things doing, and where, where are they appropriate? So um, out of the gate, I have two very strong biases. My first bias is we should educate everyone about pain science. And my second bias is there's way too much evidence to say, um, all of the positive benefits of strength training from like all-cause mortality to uh, reduction of sarcopenia, osteopenia, osteoporosis. You get, it's just exponentially too great. So those are my two biases that I think everyone should be doing uh, in clinical practice. With that said, the evidence, I think, quickly dwindles down for anything else outside of those things. And so for manual therapy, uh, I'm uh, very much opposed to it currently based on what we see in the research evidence, especially if we're looking at persistent recurrent chronic pain, because usually what happens are the narratives that are given in order to validate the usage of those treatments. And so the narrative could be given that you have an adhesion or a myofascial trigger point or a bone out of alignment or any number of things, a tight muscle or a loose muscle. All of these narratives remain fairly unsupported in the research evidence. So then the question becomes, well, what are you intervening on? You are performing a treatment without substantial evidence to say that a treatment's actually needed for the issue that you're saying you're treating. Yeah, I think that's that's been kind of a similar argument that I've made before about it, that I'm arguing less against the, the modality itself so much as the, you know, the way that you sell it to patients, the way that you have to sell it to patients, because they're going to ask, like, well, what are you doing and why does this feel better? And you have to come up with something, unless you just say, I don't really know, but you know, sometimes this makes people feel better. In which case, I have less of an objection to it, I suppose. I still like <laughs> such a. This is such a. It needs to be later in the day. We could be drinking right now, but uh, that probably frowned upon at eleven thirty in the morning. But um, <laughs> um, I still take issue with it, honestly, man. Because if we know, especially for persistent recurrent chronic pain, that part of the process is external locus of control, and there's yeah. no real strong biomedical. Uh, correlation to the issue that they've been dealing with, then we're making it still appear as though there's something wrong with them that needs outside hands to fix them. 
And that, for me, is a major ethical uh, issue. If we're looking at instilling autonomy and agency and internal locus of control in our patients, then we need to get them to realize that they can self-manage. Yeah, well, well, that's bad for business, man. That's <laughs> me being, That's the saltiest thing I can come up with. I mean, it, it, but it's true, though. You know, so, so people, people will say, hey, I feel better when I go and see my chiropractor who is relying on manual therapy uh, or, or this physical therapist who's doing body work on me or whatever other number of things that's not really evidence-based from a, you know, uh, outside of this, uh, uh, yeah, therapeutic alliance and, and, you know, uh, trusting the, the individuals and stuff like that. And they're like, well, what's the risk? And I'm like, well, the risk is you become reliant on this person and you still have maintained this ex- external locus of control over your symptoms versus you being self-reliant. And at the instant that you don't have access to this person, Guess what? Things are going to go south for you, and that's uh, that's a bad position to be in uh, long term. So, um, I, yeah, there, there's a, a risk and benefit to every intervention, and long term sort of manual therapy based interventions have a risk to them in addition to uh, potential injury. Just this actual like uh, uh, reliance on that for for pain pain reduction. All right, we talked about snap, crackle, pop, and kids. Let's talk about it in animals. What's the deal <laughs> with, yeah. with dog, doggy chiropractors? <laughs> I think Austin sent me a message on Instagram the other day with this, and I was immediately like, yeah, this exists. <laughs> I didn't I, know it existed until two days ago, that there's like veterinary <laughs> chiropractic. I'm like, what the hell is this? There are um, entire practices on that, um, and my same stance would apply, like, uh, I'm not aware of solid evidential support for a things misaligning and b if they do misalign that that's meaningful to anything long term. So then why is the intervention being completed? You know, and, and um, Jordan, you said a second ago, well, I feel good afterwards. Well, there's a lot of things that can make you feel good. Um, going to lie down for 10 minutes with the lights out and kind of just be calming yourself down is likely going to make a lot of things feel a little bit better for you. You know, and not panicking and not allowing your internal narrative to, to overwhelm you. Yeah. So it's just really tough for me. Like at the end of the day, it's your money and you get to spend your money how you want because um, that's the healthcare system we find ourselves in. But with that said, um, I want to make sure just because maybe I'm cheap, I want to spend my money on things that are, have the most evidential support behind them. Do you think, this is another topic, we'll switch gears to injuries. Do you think that injuries can be prevented? Uh, and I'll make this two parts. First part, specifically via chronic, uh, uh, someone who sees a chiropractor or a physical therapist long-term, for instance, for a role other than general strength and conditioning. Do you think that would help prevent injury? Uh, and just at a more broad topic, do you think injuries can be prevented in general? <laughs> Well, okay. Um, no, well, first, no, I don't care who uh, the clinician is that, that's exposing this. We can't prevent injuries at all. It's not possible. There's far too many variables that play into this um, environment, terrain, previous play, fatigue levels, psychology, stressors in their life, nutrition, sleep. Like the list goes on and on and on. 
for variables you'd have to try to control for to prevent something. So I'd like to talk about things probabilistically so we can reduce injury risks for sure. But the only thing that we currently have evidential support for, well, two things, is load management. And then uh, we have to talk about like, well, what is load and all the variables associated with it? And then uh, psychological coping stressor uh, mechanisms. Those are like the two things that we have solid research support for right now. So if the Cairo was talking about those things, I absolutely think they could do risk reduction. But if they're doing anything outside of those two parameters, um, most likely not. I think I think that's a topic that's actually worth we, since we have a little bit of time left. We, we that is actually worth fleshing out a little bit. So for our audience who, you know, probably they're they're probably under the impression, and and I've, we see this a lot in in some of the people we work with, where anytime something hurts, um, the immediate initial assumption is that they're they were moving wrong, that they yeah. did something. Yeah. Yeah, my butt wings and my squat. And yes, that their technique was bad, and that's why they that's why they have hurt. So that's a whole that that itself is a big big issue, right? But so so you know when it went in in your uh, answer, you talked about load management as one fundamental uh, component of reducing injury risk, which is saying something a little bit differently than like prevent injury, um, and then also the psychological stuff, which I think we've talked a lot about uh, about a lot. But I think both of those things we should maybe flush out just a tiny bit more. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh, All right. Um, so load management would be, uh, and I, I imagine, I was like, oh, is it my turn? Okay. <laughs> it's early. It's Friday, too. Um, for load management, we would look at, you know, uh, especially, hopefully, people are periodizing their training and they're tracking variables such as volume and intensity and recovery, monitoring fatigue levels. So, um, biggest person that comes to mind instantly in the field would be like Tim Gabbett and looking at a kid on chronic workload ratios. So seeing how do we get people to trade harder harder and smarter, uh, making sure that we have improved performance while reducing risk of injury. And the biz biggest way to look at that is how is, are the training variables being manipulated over time um, and ensuring, you know, whatever you're attempting to go out and do that chronically you've adapted to this and you've been prepared for it and you're capable of going to do it without any crazy inflection points along the way. Um, so that would be the first thing is, is looking at those training variables and tracking them um, and paying attention to them. And Gabbett puts out uh, numbers, you know, like um, don't let your AC ratio be over 0.8. So I believe it's 1.3. And then anything outside of that or below it, we tend to see spikes in injury occurrences. Now, granted, the limitation on those types of studies are they're team-based sport athletes. And I don't think we have anything yet that's come out on like barbell-based sports. So we're extrapolating from that data currently. Um, okay. And then psychosocial or psycho, uh, psychological coping mechanisms would be things like um, what type of stressors are the people having in their life currently and how are they handling them? So there's a couple of good research articles out there that look at injury occurrences during uh, final exam time and uh, college athletes. And they actually see a spike in injury occurrences uh, and seeking of medical care during final exam week because that's an increased stressor that they may not be managing appropriately. Um, so it's making sure that the person has things in place um, as well as people. So from a social perspective, that can help them kind of cope with life stressors. And so that's, again, hedging our bets toward learned behaviors. What are all the things in your life that you're having to stress about financially, family-wise, school-wise, um, any number of things? How can we best ensure that you're having behaviors that help you cope with them? Yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like, you know, when we talk, when you say load, that's analogous to when we're discussing fatigue. And it's like when fatigue is... Uh, so high uh, that yes, injury rate, uh, or well, I shouldn't say injury rate because that, that's another quibble that I'll have injury versus pain. 
because you know yeah. what is an injury now this becomes this like philosophical question yeah. like well what is an injury you know uh, it's a valid question it's up for debate right now yeah yeah so I would just say pain reports of pain that interfere with some sort of function I guess you could call that an injury that that probably goes up when fatigue is is over a certain amount and that uh, amount is going to change based on your resources that you have to tolerate fatigue previous training you know previous training uh, psychological attitudes towards fatigue training in general and pain and, and all sorts of other factors. But yeah, so you heard it here, folks, you can't prevent <laughs> injuries. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Really. I, I mean, outside of like intelligent management of training and variables that you do have some control over, but you, since you can't control everything, it, it ends up being a little, a little strange. So no amount of prehab rehab. I, that's so weird. I thought you were going to say just if you did like the, <laughs> the pull apart thing yeah. and then some, yeah. you know, rotator cup that you, you would really, you no upper cross syndrome. Oh gosh. Poor Danda. Um, <laughs> yeah. We, that's a whole other issue. Uh, we, we could just probably title this like bullshit things that continue to perseverate throughout the build. <laughs> and, Oh, okay. All right. Uh, so first you would, you would say that the entire like bulletproof prehab rehab thing, you, you would, you would call that bullshittery. Yeah. I mean, the only like, so we know we can probably make you more resilient and more capable of accommodating forces and load applied to you on the playing field. If we have you strength training, there's some decent evidence on that. Um, but outside of that, that kind of goes way down with evidential support. Yeah. So insofar as that stuff is training, it provides a benefit. Everything else, like the right, yes. <laughs> right, yeah. If it's not making you stronger, bigger, stronger, then it's not really beneficial. It, it does, however, cost money and time, yeah. which uh, is same thing with the Romwad. Yeah. Uh, uh, same same thing with uh, you know kinesio tape. Uh, yeah, I'm secretly doing FMS on people. I'm just not willing to cop to it. Yeah. <laughs> Right. My FMS is a back squat. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, well, good. 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 <laughs>
what do you think the prevalence is of pain secondary to this functional leg length discrepancy? Yeah, I think it's pretty low. I think although it will be assigned excessively in clinical practice by people uh, as a high correlation, but as far as in the research evidence, it's pretty close, uh, low as a driver. Um, because we do know there's such a high prevalence rate for leg length discrepancies amongst the general population. Now, the question that always comes along, especially with like um, biopsychosocial model of thinking, is when does biology matter? And I don't think that we have a good grasp on being able to say, well, at six millimeters, this is now functional leg length discrepancy, and this matters. Uh, I just don't know that we have evidential support for the, any of that yet. The, the biology, where it begins to matter, we are we're pretty unsure of at this point in time. And don't you think biological threshold would vary based on other things? A lot of other things. I mean, we see people, uh, spinal MRIs are a great example of this, and uh, x-rays. We see people who have uh, pristine x-rays that look just like the textbook, and we're like, that person is a 10 out of 10 on pain scale. And then we see people with just destroyed x-rays uh, based on like how we previously used to talk about them. And they're talking to you about how they go running every day and they feel amazing and there's no health issues. Yeah. So we know that the pain experience is very, very individualistic to the person. And it's stipulated upon a whole host of variables like growing up in childhood, like we were talking about, and learned behavior. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a social learning aspect that we were talking about. You know, if you're parent, one of your parents or both parents had back pain, you know, and they had a physically laborious job and that you saw what happened, what they did as far as their management, you know, they just bed rest, lay down, can't do anything. Oh, yeah. dad threw his back out again. He's on the couch, you know, then right. Right. you already have a fear of the slow back pain and becoming dad and like, Oh, I threw my back out and it's from this activity. And, uh, yeah. So there's that social learning aspect is, is tough. It turns out the pain's super nuanced. It is, as I regularly say in practice, this shit is complicated. Um, but it just is the way it is. But uh, for LLIs, like I, um, I don't check leg links. I, I have no bearing to think that we should be on everyone as a screening tool because that's a whole other discussion we would have to have about why we should or shouldn't be screening people. Um, so, and the other thing too, like a lot of people don't think about this when these narratives are supplied to them as uh, causative of pain, which I would highly recommend we kind of stay away from saying causation for people. Um, but uh, oftentimes these individuals are like 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years old. And it's like, well, okay, you do have a six millimeter leg length discrepancy, but how long have you lived with this? And suddenly now it matters, you know, four decades in, that doesn't make sense to me. Right, yeah, all of a sudden it's the acute cause, even though you've had it chronically, sure. Um, yeah, right. So so much of this is just the result of people who are looking for a leg length discrepancy. And of course, you're going to find one if the base rate is that high. Yeah, if you're looking for a problem, odds are you're probably going to find a problem. I mean, well, we used to do, when we were working with the starting strength organization and we would coach at a seminar, you, you would find people who had this asymmetrical squat. And so what I mean by asymmetrical is not like, oh, well, your, your glutes aren't firing as much as your hip flexors. And so we have, no, I'm not saying that, but out of the bottom of the squat, their hips would shift. You'd be like, you know, one person every seminar, maybe that might be a little high, but whatever. And so invariably, so oh, it's a leg length discrepancy. You need to get your shoe shimmed and you need to do this. Or if someone had hip pain, you'd be like, well, you might have a leg length discrepancy. We should check that out, get it measured. And the problem with that, well, there's a pro the problem is uh, the stuff we just talked about. It's probably not the cause, and, and you're attributing the cause, and that sets you up for, for a bunch of issues. But the positive aspect is if someone does have hip pain, you're like, hey, it's 
this probably from your leg leg discrepancy. And then you fix it with the shoe shim and they're like, oh, wow, I don't have any hip pain anymore. You effectively have placeboed them into not having pain because yes. you, you identified a cause that does not require this external locus of control other than wearing shoes, right, which they can, they can manage on their own. So we only have you for a few more minutes. Uh, I want to make sure that we cover the following things. First, people are going to say, hey, you guys just don't know about chiropractic medicine. You guys, you know, have you ever done it? You know, you guys are nervous chiropractors. Why are you even commenting on it? I've gotten loads of those sorts of comments before myself. That's why I was like, we need to have an actual chiropractor on here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What what's your opinion? What is your opinion on the field right now as a whole? And if the second question is, would you go back to chiropractic school? Yeah. Uh, the first one, I think that there are a lot of efforts being made to try to position the profession uh, on a more evidence based um, kind of uh, path. It is going to be painstaking, and I think that goes for a lot of different professions. I don't think that's just chiropractic. Um, but I do know the ACA, the American Chiropractic Association, has recently completely revamped their public image, and they really are trying to poise themselves to be a little more evidence-based. With that said, there's um, still a cohort of the population in the profession that are completely not evidentially based, have a very loud voice, and oftentimes these things come down to money and lobbying. And so if someone has the ability, um, hopefully you guys didn't freeze. Thank you, Mayor. Oh, okay, there we go. Um, if they have the ability and money to throw at situations, and as you as you guys probably know, you can lobby and you can kind of direct the path of the profession. So I think it's going to be an uphill battle, you know. Um, but I think we are making headway. I just don't know if it'll be my generation or the next. And I think um, the bigger picture is a lot of us are, are are screwing up, especially the pain discussion, and we're getting a lot of it wrong. So collectively, as, as all fields, we're having to try to improve ourselves. Yeah. And uh, so knowing what you know now, making the living that you're making now, doing what you're doing now, uh, would you go back to chiropractic school at this time? Yeah, I would. It, it afforded me a lot of um, a lot of benefits, you know, direct access. Um, I don't have to have referrals, so I can see patients off of the street. Um, and then I get the ability, because uh, most scope of practices in each state are fairly, are fairly broad, so I get to treat based on how I want to with therapeutic exercise or uh, neuromuscular re-education, or, and those are just headers, and it's ultimately just exercise. There's nothing therapeutic about it, but that's how they bill it out. Um, but it lets me practice how I want, and I like that. Um, I kind of am a bit stubborn, and I know how I want to do things, and I didn't want to be told how to do things, so it did afford that benefit, which I'm, I'm very grateful for. And then where can people find out more about you? Um, uh, clinical athlete, for sure. We, Derek and I, Derek Miles and I, teach scientific principles of sports rehab. Um, so that would be a course to look out for. And then we both run a blog called The Logic of Rehab. Um, basically, just he and I ranting about, uh, as we often do, about science and as it relates to clinical practice and um, hopefully trying to get people to think logically through issues. Um, and then my clinic name, um, uh, probably best you could find me on Instagram is just michael.ray.dc. Uh, same thing for Twitter. And then um, on Facebook, just Michael Ray. And then my clinic is Shenandoah Valley Performance Clinic. Yeah, so anybody, anybody in Virginia, go check them out. Yeah, if you're familiar with like uh, University of Virginia, which is in Charlottesville, yep. we're about 45, 45 minutes north of them. Cool. 
Thanks again for tuning in. Make sure to go over to iTunes, leave us a review, check us out on YouTube, the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel, on Instagram, Jordan underscore Barbell Medicine, Austin underscore Barbell Medicine, and we'll link Dr. Ray's Instagram handle below, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening.